You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. I don't know if you do this ever, but I was this past week thinking about different inventions that have changed the course of our lives and how we do things. Maybe it could be as simple as, you know, a toaster or, or, or an ice box, which actually used to be a box with ice in it. And for the longer you live, the more inventions you've seen that have just kind of changed the way we do things or changed to make life easier or better. And I was thinking about this in particular in light of our series in the last two weeks, Lament, as we've talked about how to lament and you've missed any of that, then I encourage you to go back and watch it on our YouTube channel or listen to the podcast as we went through the how-to, if you will. But I I want you to listen to something uh, real quickly, and if you're like me or a little older than me, you might, might recognize this sound. This is, what is this sound? Yes, it's a record player. But it, it, it's, you can could, you could stop that now because it's super annoying, right? So when I was younger, the tone arm of a record player, once it got to the end of a record, and for those of you who don't know what a record is, right, it's, it, you listen to music on it, okay, it, it would get to the end and it would stop and it would just scratch. And you, whatever you're doing, had to stop what you're doing and get up and go take the tone arm and pick it back up and move it back over, put on a new record or start over. Until somebody invented the automatic return tone arm. That was life-changing for those of us in that era, right? Because now you didn't have to get up and go pick up the tone arm and put it back in the beginning of the record. It automatically did it. Y'all aren't very impressed by this because y'all don't know the pain of having to get up and change your record, right? You just hit the repeat button, right, on your little iPad or iPod or whatever, right? We just hit the repeat button. But this would go back or it would drop another record and that was like, it dropped another record. It's going to play another record and I don't even have to get up. So what does this have to do with lament? Well, Not a whole lot, except that I want you to understand that throughout your life, just like the tone arm getting up and going back to the beginning, lament, as we said last week, isn't something that we check off of our list and say that we're done with. It's something that for the rest of our lives, we go back to the beginning and meet God and cry out to him and start all over as we continue, not just to learn how to lament, but as I want to talk about today, what we learn from lament. Last two weeks, if you will, have been a little bit of a how-to. The how-to recap, right? We cry out to God. We cry out to him. We turn to him because he's the one that we need to be spending time with. He's the one with the answers. He's the one that we need to draw near to. And in that crying out to God, it's okay to bring your complaint. It's okay to bring your questions. It's okay to ask how and why and what's going on but in that moment at some point there has to be a pivot to where we say but God yet you and our eyes shift from our problems to upon a great and loving God and we fix our eyes on Jesus as we move into faith-filled worship even in the middle of the fire to affirm that we trust in a trustworthy God now that's the recap of the last two weeks if you will 
That's the how-to of lament. But let's talk about what we're going to learn from lament, not just how to lament. What do I mean to learn from lament? Well, there are things that we learn through the pain of life that we can never learn through the comforts of life. It's as one author says, maybe there's something that I can learn through tear-filled eyes that I could never learn through dry eyes. And that's the case. That's true, that we grow through the crucibles of life. So we said that we have taught, I've taught you some basic music theory these first two weeks, right? We've talked about major chords and minor chords and suspended chords. And as we walk through this, because one-third of the 150 psalms are songs in a minor key, they're laments, that it's important that we learn a little bit, we've learned that, that these minor keys, these major keys, these suspensions in our life, it's the process of us drawing close to God through the crucibles of life. Today we're going to be talking and, and looking at the book of Lamentations. I don't know about you, but I've not taught much out of the book of Lamentations. I haven't heard a lot of lessons out of the book of Lamentations, and I can understand why. Because it's the most comprehensive minor key song that we have in the Bible. But it wasn't a solo. No, these Lamentations were more than just expressions of personal grief. They were designed to help God's people corporately never forget the lessons that can be learned and the lessons they were supposed to learn out of some very intense pain, some very awful, tragic things that happened in their city and the devastation that it left behind. And we should understand this. Today, even as Christians, we come to the table of remembrance. That's the Lord's Supper. It's not a, what we turn it into often is a private, personal thing. Well, this is a, a personal thing. No, it's a corporate thing. That's why we come to the what? The table. We come to the table to what? Fellowship with the community, the body of Christ. And in our hyper-individualized world, particularly in our churches here in the West, we often think of everything as personal and, and individual and, and by myself. And God's all about, no, it's the family, it's corporate, it's the body. Come to the table, the community, and let's remember what God has done for us. Let's remember what God has done for the body of believers Memorials, that's what it is. Lament is more than just a personal expression of sorrow. It's a memorial. The book of Lamentations is a historical lament meant to teach us important lessons that should never be forgotten if you are one of God's people. This should never be forgotten as God's people. This is what I mean by saying we have to learn from lament, not just learn to lament. We have to learn something from this moment. Lament is more than just that personal expression of sorrow. It is that, but it's not just that. It's a memorial. Memorial in the Bible, or even altars, if you will, were built so they could remember times and places where God showed up and did something that only God could do, that I couldn't get myself out of. A memorial or altar was something that said, I am powerless, but God is powerful. I am helpless, but God is able. I am faithless, and yet, God, I call on on your faithfulness to do what only you can do. This is a lament, and this is a memorial, and this is what altars and memorials were all about, to commemorate the power of God. Now, biblical lament helps us to memorialize the right things and remember the past correctly and honestly, even if difficult and painful, as opposed to crafting our own for our own benefit or to avoid something altogether because we don't like to think about painful or difficult things in the past. We all understand this. 
This is something that we default to, but we need to do this. What do I mean this? We need to lament. You want to know why? Because lament is the way God will deal with what he wants to heal. Lament is the way that God begins to deal with the things in your life that he wants to heal. And this is important because restoration doesn't come to those who live in denial. God is unable to heal what we continue to conceal. That's why he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? You can't hide from me, but as you continue to hide from me, you're going to not have the ability or the grace that God wants to pour out on us to heal us. So we're we're not going to be healed by what we continue to hide. Why biblical lament starts with what? Honestly crying out to God about the pain, about the suffering, about the sorrow, about the difficulty. We're being honest before a loving, trustworthy God. The title of this morning's message is The House of Mourning. Not early morning, but M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. The house of mourning. Sounds like a place that I want to avoid. Sounds like a place that we do avoid. Even in the church. But let's instead be a people who are honest about our past so that we can experience God's grace in the present and hope for the future. Today, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Lamentations. It's in the Old Testament. A little bit after Psalms, if you've never been there before. And I'm going to try to do a survey of the book, which is really probably impossible. And I'm going to go long uh, just because that's what I'm prone to do, even if I have a short message. So literally, we could spend a lot of time on this. But this is historical context I want to give you of this book. It's, it's five chapters. We're going to do a flyover, if you will. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah. He's crying out like it's a song in a minor key. He's reflecting upon the total destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 536 BC, and he wanted the succeeding generations to know and to never forget the lessons that they learned and should learn from the terrible moment in Israel's history. Lamentations is dark and it's gloomy and it doesn't have a happy resolution. And if we're honest, we don't like books like that. We don't like movies like that. We don't like conversations like that. Like you got to have the worst conversation. Well, can we just make this end like good? No, we're going to sit in this because this, we're not done with this. That's not how we like life. We want to bring it to a nice, tidy, clean, neat, happy ending. But until we understand this book in a different way, it's more than a historical account. It's a reminder that we're to learn from lament. There's a lesson underneath our laments. There's a message underneath the mess, if you will. And it's something that we'll listen to and not forget and not deny. God will continue to show us the purpose of the pain, the purpose of the difficulty, the purpose of the fire. And all of a sudden, what will happen is the purpose that God has for our life will begin to overshadow the pain that we're actually walking through in life. So we said last week, the pain may not go away, but the purpose of what God is doing, like Paul, and we'll talk about this, will say it's, it's greater. What I'm going through now doesn't even compare to what God is doing in me. Lamentations 1 and 2. Again, I'm just doing a survey. I won't be reading all of this, and you're glad, but You can read it later on. It sets the tone for the entire book, and it has this one main question. It's really an acrostic, and it has this one main question through those two chapters. How? How did we get here? 
And I think we all understand this question. We all understand that we've been in a situation where we've said, how is this even possible? How, how, how is this happening? How did this happen? Or the, the original Hebrew, how is actually the title of this book? How? How, God, did we get here? Lamentations 1.1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Lamentations 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Over and over again, this acrostic, if you will, it's just that same question through these first two chapters. How? How? And lament gives us the vocabulary to ask out loud, and it's okay to do so. How, God? How did this happen? God, if you're sovereign, then why is this pain in my life? God, if you're in control, then how did you let this happen in our world? This is a how. And there's this tension that we have to sit in. There's this tension that we come to and we accept as part of our human experience. As we turn to God in prayer, as we voice our complaints, boldly asking God for help, even as we're asking how, and all of a sudden, right, our problems begin to be overshadowed by the purpose of God. And finally, we choose to trust God while the resolution is still suspended, while the resolution is still hanging there and it hasn't resolved to a nice major chord. We may not get the answer or the resolution that we want. We may not get the answer or the resolution even in this life, so we lament, and the record of this minor key song will be sung again and again. The tone arm lifts back up, it goes back to the beginning, and all of a sudden we start all over again, and we cry out to God, and we voice our complaint, and we affirm that we trust in him as we ask him to help us. But when you ask a question like, how do we get here? There's actually a succeeding question that comes after that that I was taught many years ago by someone that was mentoring me. And it's like, you know, there's a, sometimes a question that you have to follow up with a question. Do you really want to know? How do we get here? Do you really want to know? Now, the answer, if we're going to be honest before God, is yes, we really want to know. But many times, if we're truthful, we really don't want to know. But as we ask this question, do you really want to know? Here's what Lamentations does. It's very clear on how the people of Israel got to where they were, how the people are facing the judgment of God. And here it is, very simply, it's because of their sin. <gasps> That's a bad word. Like, we don't want to talk about that. But their sinfulness led to their brokenness. These are God's people, remember? These are God's holy people. This is Jerusalem. This is God's holy city. If anybody's going to be okay, it's these people in this city. But there's something more important to God than his value of a holy city or a holy people, and it's his righteousness. The people had turned away from God in every way possible. So the book of Lamentations laments the sinfulness of an entire nation. We've heard of the prodigal son. Well, this is the prodigal city. In essence, the people abandoned God in every way, in their worship, in their actions, and ultimately in their hearts. And lamentation reminds us of the utter destruction of sin, even to a nation where everywhere you look has turned away from God in our worship, in our hearts, and in our actions. And the result of that is destruction, devastation, and brokenness. 
Lamentations 1, 8 and 9, Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she's been tossed away like a filthy rag. I won't even go into all of what that means. All who once honored her now despise her, for they have been seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. She defiled herself with immorality and gave no thought of her future. Now she lies in the gutter with no one to lift her out. Lord, see my misery, she cries. The enemy has triumphed. There's a combining, basically the nation, that's the she that they're talking about. If you could have seen Jerusalem, the destruction that had happened after the Babylonian captivity, after they took over and destroyed the city and razed the city, if you could have seen all of that and the depravity of people, it would have shocked you, maybe. And Jeremiah wants to memorialize this. He wants to remember this. Again, something we understand. Memorials help us to remember tragic things. Maybe that we had no part in, but still affect us as humans in some way. Why? Because tragedies that affect people made in God's image should concern us and do affect us. I've been to the 9-11 memorial on two different occasions. It's there to memorialize and remember a tragedy. I've been to other memorials in my life. That one in particular twice, or maybe Auschwitz that shows the depravity of the Jewish genocide. And why do we remember that? Because there's some that want to say that it never happened. So we remember, and there's a lesson that's learned underneath that. I also remember visiting the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, as I walked through the lynching memorial with my family and read all of the names from all of the counties, including Columbia County, and it reminded me of the depravity of humanity, the destructiveness of sin, and the devastation that sin leaves in its wake. Memorials keep reminding us there are lessons to be learned through the tragedies of life, and the book of Lamentations lesson is clear. God is long-suffering, God is merciful, but rebellion against his righteousness has dire consequences. Lamentations is a memorial of a broken world and a holy God. A broken world and a holy God. And there are still things God wants to teach us today if we're willing to not move on because something is painful or hard or difficult. That's actually the Christian life in a nutshell. But instead, slow down and listen and learn. And if we'll do that, we can grow in wisdom. Lament is uncomfortable, yet it still is a helpful teacher. I draw encouragement from how Ecclesiastes 7.4 says it. It's something that I heard a different way growing up. But Ecclesiastes 7.4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's like what Paul said, hey, if this is all farce and this isn't real, then eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just, let's party if this is all not real. John Maxwell says it this way, experience isn't the best teacher. Evaluated experience is. See, what I heard growing up was experience was the best teacher. That's not true. Not if you don't learn from it. True wisdom is gained, the Bible says, in the crucible of life's trials, not the pleasures of this world. 
I think one of the main lessons we learned from the first two chapters of Lamentations is that sin is the real problem. It's a real problem in our world. Sin has a destructive result and a deadly end. The Bible says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his end. That is the end that he has for all of us. And when we forget, here's the problem, when we forget that sin is a problem, it will become an even bigger problem. All lament and suffering have their roots in the fallen state of a broken and sinful world. Sorrow and pain entered the world as a result of a rebellion against God's rule. But hear me out. Listen, I am not saying this. I'm not saying that all the pain and all the suffering and all of the disappointment or difficulties in your life are directly connected to a specific sin in your life. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is it would minimize the horrible effects of sin to not connect the fallen state of our world with the pain and sorrow we experience. As Christians, we have to know that every death, every war, every injustice, every loss, every betrayal, every hurt, every sorrowful tear owe their existence to sin. Lamentations reminds us of the brokenness that is connected to the presence of sin in this world and that consequently affects all of our lives detrimentally. This leads to another aspect of what we see and learn in lamentations. In lamenting, lamentations reminds us that sin is far more widespread and endemic than just our individual experience. It's not just about us. I've always said this, like, look, when when you disobey God's word, when we sin, when we mess up, it never just affects us. It's never an individual experience. It is individual, but it has a corporate result. Why? Because we're a part of a world made in God's image. We're a part of a body as Christians, a body of Christ. So we hyper-individualize everything from our salvation to our sin, forgetting how pain affects other people as well. Our collective rebellion against God is seen clearly through our culture, in our families, in our cities, and in our nations. We can see systemic problems and evils that can be directly connected to the brokenness in this world. And lament opens our eyes to the brokenness of pain around us, not just in us. Again, let me reiterate, this is not so that we can get angry, fearful, cynical, or hopeless. That's not the reason for lament. It's actually supposed to take us to a place of greater trust, knowing God has a plan that is going to come to pass in his time, no matter what we see. So we go to the house of mourning. That's what we do. We go there because that's where we learn. That's where wisdom comes from. There's something terminally wrong with our world. And God, through his son, Jesus Christ, is the only one who can make it right. Jesus paid for the right to make things right, and he's going to do that one day. The turning point in the book of Lamentations as we continue through is found in chapter 3 where the most well-known passages that we know of probably in this book are found in verses 22 and 23. This is the ones that I knew. This is one I probably have taught as a verse. Probably didn't even teach it correctly in context. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great is thy faithfulness. Now that's how I remember that. That's how I remember that verse. That's how I remember that passage. And it sounds serene. 
Sounds like it might have been written from a mountain cabin with a cup of hot coffee and a nice new devotional and a leather-bound journal and a nice new free-flowing fountain pen. You know those pens that just, ooh, ooh. I like pens. I don't know why, but, man, that writes so good. But instead, think about this being sung in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Think about this being sung in the middle of Europe in World War II, middle, middle of Hiroshima. But amidst the inconceivable destruction, this scripture affirms what every lament has to affirm. Every lament must affirm what we know to be true despite what we see. This is where biblical lament is transformative by voicing your honest pain and suffering while anchoring your heart to the unchanging character of God, the unchanging truths about his character and his sovereignty over all while things still don't look that way. Last week we briefly talked about the conjunction junction and what its function was. Yet and but, and we see that in this chapter, it's the pivot point in our prayers. It's the pivot point in our lament, the place where our eyes shift from our problems and the problems of our world to God and to Jesus, fixating on the King of Kings. And in Lamentations 3.21, right before what I just read, you see these two different pivot points. I'll give two different translations for emphasis. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Or from the NLT, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Here's where Jeremiah, and we must too, draws from the depths of our belief that God is a good God. Here's where good theology informs our eschatology. He dares to hope again because he believes the truth about who God is, the truth about God's plans, the truth about God's word. Lament dares to hope when life is tough, when life is cruel, when life doesn't make sense, when life is painful, when life is unjust. We dare to hope again. It's a prayer of faith despite our fear. Lamentation shows us that even when our circumstances remain unchanged, hope comes from what you know to be true despite the situation that's right in front of you. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 remembers, reminds us this is the kind of living that we live by what? Faith, not by sight. It's not by sight that I'm living. I'm living by faith. We're able to live through suffering by what we believe, not by what we see or feel. And lament helps us do that. If you say it's hopeless, well, then the argument it is, well, what do you have your hope in? It's hopeless. Well, then it could be. It depends on what your hope's in. Call to mind what God is like. Put your hope in him. Remember what you know to be true. Say it over and over again. Rehearse it. Recite it. Say it out loud. Sing it. Memorize it. Believe it. Dare to hope again. This is where we preach to ourselves like Psalm 42 says. Rise up, O soul. Why so downcast? Put your hope in God. We do this in order what? To interpret our pain through the lens of God's character. Through the lens of God's mercy, not just our feelings and our finite understanding because we don't know. We do this over and over again. We let it hit repeat. The rest of the chapter, of this chapter three, just begins to bring hope as it reiterates God's mercies are new every morning. Waiting is never a waste. If you're still here, it's not over. God's not done. God's still at work. And God is always good. Despite what I see and feel, all of these things are true. We're almost done with this flyover. I feel like I'm going at a speed of light. Lamentations 4. 
It's important as it speaks to our propensity as well as our futility of putting our trust in anything other than God. There's a stark reminder in Lamentations that we're exiles, but the problem is, is we don't want to be exiles. We want to make this our home. We don't like being exiles. Who does? Last week I said that lament and believing the promises of God won't make the pain go away, but it will reveal or help us learn, give us wisdom as we go to the house of mourning for the purpose of the pain. Pain can reveal covert enemies in our life. Just like I said earlier as I was praying and the worship team was singing, just like the fire, the refiner's fire, that's who God is, right? In a fire refining gold, there's impurities in gold. And at the bottom, it's settled. It's settled down into the bottom of that thing. And the fire turns up and the heat gets so hot that the impurities at the bottom that have settled in begin to separate and rise to the top of the gold so it can be skimmed off so the gold can be purified. What I'm telling you is that in our culture and in our nation, in our world right now, the heat of God's affliction and fire is being turned up in this world and the impurities and the things that we put our trust in are rising to the top so that God can skim them off and refine us to make us pure like we're supposed to be. We want to put our hope in things that they, we shouldn't put our hope in, and that's what's coming to the surface. An idol is any object of trust that takes the emotional and practical place of God in our life. Anything that's more important to you than God, an idol. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, an idol. The true test of whether something is an idol in your life or not is the response that you give when you lose it. We used to do this with our kids in video games. They used to hate it. it it's become an idol in your life. You know, like, that was a little bit holy. I, was, I mean, I was like, but you take that video game away, and it was like we just cut off their hand or something, right? It's like, mm, you're not getting it back now. It's even longer. We need to break this idolatry in your life. So here's what Tim Keller says, making a distinction between the sorrow of losing something and the despair. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among other good things. Despair is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose an ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to, and it breaks your spirit. See, I think the fire, as I said, has been turned up in the furnace of our nation and our churches and our lives, and the idols in our lives are coming to the surface, and what we've allowed to settle down in the bottom of our hearts undisturbed is now being disturbed and brought to the surface through the refining heat of tension and affliction of God's holiness. My hope is we would allow lament and pain to be a platform of faith-filled worship in the middle of the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then also a conduit for spiritual growth and repentance. Lamentations 4 starts with mourning the loss of their idols, if you will, and just see if these ring true as we kind of blaze through these. <laughs> Pun intended. Starts with mourning the loss of their financial security and national wealth. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. This should not be a shock. I think we all understand that money can become an idol. Probably better put, financial security is a false idol. Money or wealth provides security. Yes, it creates an identity. It gives us options. It gives us power. This is why recessions cause us to freak out. Lament breaks through the fortress of our self-sufficiency and our money and shows us that spiritual bankruptcy of trusting in the security money brings more than the security that God provides. 
Another idol or object of trust that we see is putting our hope in people. This is the next thing that you see as they put their hope in a king and armies and it didn't work. Whenever we put our hopes and dreams on people, whether it's romantically, economically, or politically, we misplace our trust. We put our hopes onto people that they were never meant to fulfill or carry. Lying in the rubble of Jerusalem was not just their useless, worthless gold and gems, but also any hope that a human leader, judge, or king could remedy the problems of the people. No person is your savior. Don't forget, no person can be your savior. Only Jesus can be your savior. Lament reminds us about the peril of putting too much hope in human leaders. Our ultimate savior and deliverer does not sit on the Supreme Court, does not sit in the Oval Office, does not even stand behind a pulpit in the church, but he does sit on a throne in heaven. This misplaced trust in people can go down to a personal level with your spouse, your children, your friends, and even yourself. And in lament, we cry out to God first and foremost. And Lamentations 4 shows the futility of making anyone the ultimate object of our trust other than God couple more and we'll be done. Lament opens our ears to the cries of our culture. Cultural comfort can become an idol to where we miss and ignore the pain and the depravity that surrounds us. We even miss the lessons to be learned from the devastation that's around us. But also when the cultural comforts begin to disappear and the impurities of where we placed our hope in our comfort begin to rise to the top and we begin to look out for only one person and that's ourselves. Verse 3, even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. This is legitimately taking place in the rubble of this city that was so great at one time. Let's think about where we find ourselves many times in our own context today. We're experiencing a modicum of peace. We, we feel fairly safe. We feel comfortable in our lives, and it can cause us to be numb to the problems that are right around the corner. Lament, on the other hand, gives us new eyes to see the true condition of our community. It opens up our ears. It opens up our hearts to the pain that is around us as it pulls down the idol of wanting to live in some idyllic fantasy land that doesn't exist. One of the places I know God is taking us as a church is to have an awareness, and not just an awareness, but an action in even greater measure towards the brokenness in our community around us, whether it's poverty, divorce, Sexual abuse, abortion, drug addiction, racism, or any kind of human trafficking, lament softens our hearts to the pain of others and calls us to action as we hear the cries of our culture. The last idol that Lamentations covers is presuming God's divine favor. (laughs) If anybody could have claimed God's divine favor and blessing, no matter what, it would have been the people of God in the holy city of God. But they stopped recognizing that everything they had accomplished was by God's grace and not their own strength and power. And I want want you to understand that America can get caught up in this worship of cultural optimism as well and think that somehow that God bless America from sea to shining sea and that all's going to be right and all's going to be okay and it's all going to turn around. Lamentations tells us and reminds us that divine blessing does not guarantee a pain-free life or national immunity from loss. When we lose any of these idols, it's a reminder to where our affections should really be. We're to long for the king of kings who is of a different kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. We're exiles and we lament and it helps us to acknowledge that this world is not our final destination. It's not the end while learning about what we truly love and trust in the most right now. And lastly, Lamentations 5. It's a real quick closing 
And there is a little bit of a turning because it's an appeal to God's grace. It does not end with a resolution. Like I said, it does not close with all the questions answered. Much like life today, not all your questions have been answered, have they? They won't be. But it does give us hope. Lament spiritually reorients us to direct us towards God's grace. Lament is what we do when the answers don't come like we hoped. Lament is what we do when the prayers aren't answered like we prayed. Lament is the song we sing in a minor key. When we look to Jesus in the middle of our pain, in the middle of the refining fire, we turn our eyes to Jesus, even if they're filled with tears, so that we can look upon him and have hope in the only place that we can have hope, and that's the grace of God. Chapter 5 contains those appeals. Verse 1 says, remember, Lord, what's happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. This is an appeal to God's grace based on God's character. In the face of honestly recognizing their disgrace, Jeremiah appeals to God to make it worth it. Remember, restoration doesn't come to those who live in denial. But think about this. If you're going to make an appeal today, I mean, I was thinking this, God, make this worth it. Isn't that an amazing appeal? Think about the destruction and and the difficulties in your life or in the history of our world and just, God, make this worth it. This has been painful, Lord. Make it worth it. Verse 19, another appeal. We see the familiar conjunction, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Here's another spiritual reorientation again as Jeremiah anchors his heart to what he believes that God is sovereign over all, including the pain of his life, including the pain of an entire nation. This is one of those points where we ask ourselves, do we really remember who we're following? Do we remember who we're disciples of? His name is Jesus, and this is why we remember the cross, that God ordained and at the same time reigned over Jesus' crucifixion. The brutal death of the Son of God at the hands of evil men was a part of God's ultimate plan. So if God could take the worst moment in all of history and turn it for our good, redeem it for his glory, then he could certainly take your situation and you could say, but you, O Lord, reign over this too. I may not have a clue of what's going on right now. I don't even see how you could use this situation, God. I don't see how you could redeem this painful circumstance in my life, but you are sovereign over all. Very simply, lament helps us declare the pain doesn't reign over my life. Jesus reigns over my life. Which leads to the final appeal of Lamentations 5, verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. See, the final appeal is what we need. It's what we all need to be restored back into a right relationship with God. More than the removal of pain, we need a renewal of our hearts. Lamentations is actually pointing us towards the place every lament should lead, and that's the message of the gospel. Jesus is the answer to the cause of every pain. Every pain, every sorrow, every tear, every hurt, every loss gives evidence of the brokenness in our world caused by sin, something that is terminally and fatally wrong with our world. 
So Jesus stepped out of heaven into our broken world. He became a man, lived a perfectly obedient life, suffered and died on a cross to provide us the ability to be restored back to God. It was the darkest day in history, and yet it changed everything. The empty tomb, which we also remember as much as possible, the Bible says, reminds us that death has been defeated and Jesus has won the victory over the devil, even death itself. It changed our viewpoint between the now and the consummation of the victory that comes in Christ so that our pain and our suffering has a purpose. And I'll close with this scripture that I mentioned earlier. For I consider, Romans 8, 18, that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In the meantime, we practice lament as it leads us to God's grace again and again. As the arm goes back and starts all over and we play that record, that minor key song of worship over and over, lament reminds us that in the midst of horrific destruction, a better story is still being written. Against the backdrop of pain and suffering, the good news becomes even better news as lament leads us to intimacy with our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.